Well, dear friends, would you take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 24. Luke 24, we're going to be reading in just a moment, verses 50 to 53. And before we read the Word of the Lord, let us ask our God to help us understand. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come as needy people who need the instruction that You provide, who need the truth weighed before us for our sanctification. And Lord, we ask as we read and study Your Word that You would send the same Spirit who authored the Word to illumine truth to our hearts. Would You show us Christ and would You lead us to Him in deep loyalty and affection. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you are able, would you stand for the reading of God's Holy Word? Again, we're in Luke 24, the very last section starting in verse 50. Jesus has been preaching to His disciples, instructing them in the truth over the course of about 40 days. And now we reach the ascension. Then He led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up His hands, He blessed them. While He blessed them, He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped Him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Well, this is the Word of the Lord. For them, please be seated. Well, this morning after... 149 sermons thus far, and this longest of all Gospels, not longest in terms of chapter numbers, but in actual verse content, we've actually come to the end of Luke's first volume. And I wish I could say that I planned uh, back before the infamous year of 2020 that I would preach exactly 150 sermons on the Gospel of Luke. I did not. It just happened to work out that way. But now we are concluding. Jesus' work on earth in His first coming. Yet it's vital to understand that as the ascension brings an end to the earthly ministry of Jesus and His physical presence departs from us, this does not bring an end to Jesus' ministry. The book of Acts will be the work that Jesus continues to do through His apostles by means of the Spirit of God to grow His church. And everything that will happen in Acts will be because King Jesus has ascended and poured out His Spirit. He is the Son of God with power, exalted over all, and He will cause His fame to spread throughout all the nations. Jesus will continue to take this role by equipping His Spirit, equipping by His Spirit His disciples, by converting through His Spirit, by growing His church in the Spirit until all of His enemies are made a footstool for His feet. So in other words, the day will come, as Jesus once told Isaiah, or the Lord once told Isaiah, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That mustard seed which was compared to the kingdom of God, it will grow to become the biggest of garden plants. The influence of Christ's church will spread to every nation, tongue, tribe, and people. But before that can happen, Jesus will leave this present world 
returning to the glory of His Father, and from there, ascended on high, He will rule over all things for us. Now, as we begin to study the ascension of Christ, and I say begin because you're going to get this again in Acts when we get to it in the new year. As we begin to study the ascension, I want you to note five things with me this morning as we reflect on this brief account uh, at the end of Luke's Gospel. And we'll move through these swiftly. First, I want you to note with me the place in verse 50. The place. Luke reports in verse 50 that the bodily resurrected Christ, no ghost, real flesh and bone, Jesus led them, the apostles, out as far as Bethany. That is, out of Jerusalem as far as Bethany. Now, Bethany, if you remember, is the place to which Jesus came on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives on what we call Palm Sunday. And he had sent two of his disciples to secure a donkey's colt on which Jesus would ride. Jesus had been speaking in his ministry about his coming exodus that he would accomplish in Jerusalem. He talked about that with Moses and Elijah on the mountain in Luke 9. It would be a work of redemption that the exodus pointed to, but that Jesus would now accomplish. And in the week of his passion, it would culminate in the cross where Jesus would set us free. But He began that Passion Week with a declaration of who He was as He came down the Mount of Olives riding a donkey's colt coming from Bethany as a king. Now you remember He did that because He was fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your King is coming to you, righteous in salvation, is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foe of a donkey? Now, the action plainly said that King Jesus was the greater David to come who would rule from sea to sea. And yet, unbeknownst to his disciples, who were praising Jesus as he is riding on the colt, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Zechariah had also pro- prophesied that it would be by the blood of the covenant that Jesus would set sinners free. We're not going to see Rome crushed to set sinners free. We're going to see the Son of God crushed. And Zechariah went on to speak of Messiah's coming betrayal, sold for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11. He spoke of the salvation that the Lord would author, and yet how He Himself would be pierced, Zechariah 12. A fountain would be opened for sin and uncleanness to wash needy sinners but the shepherd himself would be struck, Zechariah 13. So there's coming glory for the king, and yet there's also great humiliation. But Zechariah indicated after the shepherd, the king is struck, all hope is not lost. For his enemies come against the people of God, the Lord himself, Zechariah 14, will go out and fight for his people. Now he can't fight for us if he's dead. That has to mean He prevails over the sword of judgment that struck Him. And then we read these words, Zechariah 14.4, On that day, His, that is the Lord's feet, shall stand on the Mount of Olives. Where is Bethany? It's on the Mount of Olives. In other words, the king shall station himself on the hill overlooking Jerusalem as one who conquers one who overthrows every foe. 
Now, Zechariah is one of those strange, multifaceted glimpses of the work of our Savior. In chapter 14 of Zechariah, shows our Savior who's a warrior king, and it's describing the already and the not yet of victory. It describes King Jesus prevailing over our enemies, Satan, sin, and death, all the forces of darkness that we might be redeemed, and yet it also describes King Jesus coming with His holy ones, the angels, to exercise kingly power and wipe our enemies away. That's obviously referring to His second coming. Zechariah 14, then brethren, pictures both the accomplishment of Jesus' victory through the cross and His return. And both of these things are related to the Mount of Olives where Bethany is. You see, when Jesus ascends to heaven, as Luke will report in Acts chapter 1, two angels will instruct the disciples. They will say this, Acts 1.11, This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw Him go into heaven. The Mount of Olives, Bethany in particular, serves as the prophesy location where the glory of the Lord will both ascend and return. So as Jesus began His descent of suffering, going through Passion Week as our conquering King, coming down from Bethany on the Mount of Olives, now having defeated Him who holds the power of death, having crushed the curse, Jesus goes back to that mountaintop as victor. And now He ascends. The location indicates that the work Christ came to do is finished. He has completed His earthly mission. He has fulfilled His Father's purpose and brought salvation to His people. Jesus came. Jesus saw an interruption. He suffered, died, and was buried. And yet He conquered. He has glorified the Father. And now as the obedient Son, He is exalted. He's returning to the Father. Jesus ascends visibly to show His people He has completed His earthly work. And what are we, God's people, to take from this whole scene on the mountain? Well, it's a very simple thing. God's plan has been fulfilled. The faithfulness of God is shining here in neon lights. Everything the prophets spoke about concerning the Christ is coming to pass. He has suffered, just like they said. He did bear our sins, just like they said. He has conquered. He's overcome, just like the prophet said. He's been raised, just as they predicted. And now, Psalm 110, verse 1, the most quoted text of the Old Testament in the New, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Yes, we still await the day when the King comes back in all of His glory. But the ascension from Bethany says, every promise of God is true. Every word will come to pass. The day is where sin and sorrow prevail under Satan's onslaught are finished. He's still going to attack you, yes, but He will not prevail because we have a King who has completed His work and He has secured our souls. And then to further picture the security and peace that God's people have, see then secondly with me, not just the place, but now the blessing. Verse 50, standing there in Bethany on the Mount of Olives, just before Jesus is taken up into glory, we read this, and lifting up His hands, 
He blessed them. And then in verse 51, the parting will happen in the midst of Jesus pronouncing a blessing upon His people. Now what does this mean? What's the significance of the blessing? Well, if the location links back to Jesus as our King, our great conqueror, the blessing looks to Jesus as our great high priest. In fact, as a Jew, it would be impossible to hear of Jesus lifting up His hands and blessing and not think of the role that God had given priests in the Mosaic administration. Aaron's sons were to bless God's people and say, tell me if you've heard these words, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. And then after those words were uttered, the Lord told Moses, Numbers 6.27, So they, the priest, shall put My name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. In other words, when the priests bless God's people, they are not engaged in some type of, oh, how do I put it, uh, pious, uh, pious speak, kind of a, you know, an abracadabra moment. They're not engaging in religious words that sound spiritual but don't have any substance. It's not magic. They are agents of God to communicate that Yahweh, the covenant God, has placed His name upon His people. And those who are looking to Yahweh, those who are trusting the Lord and resting in Him, are attached to the living God. They are stamped with His name. Now, how can a bunch of sinners be marked with the very name of God? How can the Holy Lord associate Himself with people like us who are not holy in ourselves? Well, the Lord gave a means for His people to be drawn near to Him. It was sacrificial blood. Only we know that all those Old Testament sacrifices didn't actually bring cleansing to the sinner. It pictured the curse removed. It pictured justice satisfied and forgiveness granted. But redemption wasn't accomplished until our true representative, the God-man, not some animal that can't stand in our place, but the God-man, the Lord Jesus, takes the blow, satisfies the justice of God, and makes us clean with His blood. You see, Jesus has brought to His people through His death and resurrection not just a picture of washing, but true, eternal redemption. We can have our Father's blessing because Christ has secured the blessing of God for us. Jesus submitted Himself to the Father's frown to taste the horrors of no blessing, only the blackness of wrath that He would pay our debts. I know some of you have heard this before, but it's worth saying again. On that day on Golgotha, when as the hymn says, the Father turned His face away, when the Father visited His wrath upon His own Son in our place, the, the words are not, the Lord bless you and keep you. It's the Lord curse you and put you away. The, the Lord bring no shining face upon you, but only darkness. The Lord visit you with a full weight of hell. 
for what God's people deserve. The Lord lift up His wrath against you and spare you not because there's no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. Now you know as well as I do that Jesus is not wicked, but He's substituting Himself for our wickedness so that Paul can say, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin. Jesus is cursed for us. But Jesus paid the debt. And what does that mean for us? What well, means that we who now trust in Christ can have peace with God. God is not ashamed to put His name on us. To call us His chosen people. A holy nation. A royal priesthood. A people for His own possession. Brethren, if we're in Christ Jesus, we are the apple of God's eye. Those He loved so much that He gave His precious Son that Jesus might bring us into unbreakable fellowship with the Father. So Jesus is departing to heaven, raising His hands and telling His apostles, you, brethren, are blessed. You are standing in grace. You are in a state of peace. You have everlasting hope, forgiveness, a curse-free existence is not a vain wish for us. Jesus has secured it with His blood. And yes, we currently live in a world marred by the curse, but we don't belong to this world. We belong to another one. And we who rest in Christ will never face the curse of God. We are His blessed, His favored people. And to further these wonderful realities, when the priests put the Lord's name on God's people, the Lord said, again, listen to the words literally, I, I will bless them. Or emphatic, I myself will bless them. In other words, our blessing is not in question. We're not living our lives as believers in the Lord Jesus and wondering if we are getting God's blessing. This is one of the many problems with the health and wealth gospel, which is no gospel at all. That we're yearning for God's blessing. You have God's blessing. It's been secured in Jesus Christ. You're not going to Jacob like Esau did and say, Father, please bless me. No, brethren, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus right now. You cannot be cut off from the blessing of God. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No evil can thwart your spiritual riches. And ultimately that means Christ has great plans for His church and those plans won't be crushed. As Jesus ascends into heaven, blessing His people, He's assuring us, I have loved you to the end. And my love for you has not ceased you will certainly have blessing. The building of Christ's church, therefore, is not in question. The disciples are going to have success in their mission. They will see the sure establishment and growth of the church because nothing can reverse God's favor on His people. What an encouraging declaration. How can we sit here and take it in like this? This is amazing that God's every blessing is upon you and it will never be snatched away. It ought to make you shout for joy. Our great high priest through his life, death, resurrection has ushered us into blessings 
that will never stop. How can it not produce joy? The world may curse you, and they will. The devil may denounce you and accuse you, and he will. But the Father in Christ says, you're mine. And blessing shall flow to you. Nothing can take that away. Thirdly, see with me. The parting. So as Jesus was blessing them, verse 51, He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. I want us to think a moment about what is actually happening in this scene and what the ascension means for us. Some have argued that Jesus' ascension was only figurative. He just seemed to have ascended because Jesus has already spoken, Matthew 28, to the apostles in Galilee, saying, Lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So doesn't that mean that Jesus never really departs? He never really leaves. He only seems to depart. Well, the confusion here relates to the two natures of Jesus Christ. And I'll try to not get us too deep into the weeds of this mysterious thing to our minds. But remember that Jesus is the God-man. He is truly human, truly our representative. He's truly the second and last Adam who's come to restore what Adam and we in Adam lost. Yes, Jesus is a divine person and the Son of God always united with the Father and the Spirit, is everywhere present. But this ascension of Christ is the parting of the God-man. Jesus' real, resurrected body cannot be in two places at one time. On earth and among the apostles. uh, Sorry, on earth among the apostles and in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. That would violate true humanity. It would suggest that our Savior is some type of composite or mixture of God and man. The kids used to learn this as green Jesus. Uh, and you might wonder, that's, you can talk to Dr. Joss about that. Uh, you know, a, a little of this color, right? He's God. A, a little of this color, he's man, and mix it up and you get something altogether different. Well, the altogether different can't save you because He doesn't represent you. Without Jesus' true humanity, suffering as a man, obeying as a man, conquering as a man in the likeness of our flesh, and bodily raised, we have no hope that Jesus is ushering humanity into victory. But as Jesus ascends into heaven, the apostles are witnessing the real, the true transition of the body of Jesus to a new location. Jesus is ascending to the special dwelling place of the Father with the angelic hosts present and the spirits of just men made perfect present. And that means, see if we can grasp this truth, and that means wonder of wonders. The very dust of the earth, the flesh of man made from the dust, is now sitting on the throne of glory. Adam was created to be in the near presence of God. To experience fellowship with God. Walking with Him. Serving God as King. 
with all things under His feet. But then He fell and sin ruined it and Adam is cast out of God's presence and we have nothing but the stains of sin. But Jesus has come to raise ruined, to raise ruined man and to bring Him to the place God created Him to be, crowned with glory and honor, to dwell in the very presence of God in a perfected existence. The physical body of Jesus is going to another world to take up residence there to prepare a place for us. And here's the kicker. Jesus is blazing a trail for us to ascend to heaven's throne as well. Jesus goes to heaven that where He is, we might be also. Brethren, it's not just that we have the hope of resurrection. We have the hope of dwelling in God's immediate presence. We have the hope of being kings in the very paradise of God. That's the significance of the ascension. And there's a sense in which we're already sharing in this. Now, I'm really I'm taking you deeper into this truth, and this is incomprehensible to the human mind, but it's what God's Word teaches. In Colossians chapter 3, when Paul is talking about the new life we have in Christ, Paul tells you you should set your mind on the things above. And he tells you, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You're to set your mind on the things above because you're attached to Jesus. Where He is, you are too. You've been raised and seated with Him. Paul makes this even more explicit in Ephesians chapter 2, when he's describing the grace that saved us. We've been made alive together with Christ. We've been raised up with Christ. And get this, the Father has seated us with Him. Seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You know what that means, dear Christian? We already have a foot in glory right now. And yet one foot still on this earth waiting for the fullness of our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Let me put it a different way. You're already in heaven in the presence of God because you're attached to Jesus Christ. And it's incomprehensible that already in heaven attached to Jesus that you could be cut off from that attachment. Our Savior has gone ahead of us to a place of exaltation and honor and rule, and He will bring us to that place. So that in the book of Revelation, one of the promises given the seven churches is that we will reign with Christ. We will be seated on the throne with Him. We are co-heirs together with Jesus of the world. However, as Jesus is parting to heaven to take His seat at the Father's right hand, this again tells us the work He's done here. It is truly completed. The author of Hebrews will put it this way. Hebrews 1.3 After making purifications for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Priests didn't sit down. There was no chair in the temple because their work didn't stop. But Jesus sits down because He's finished. And further, He sits down at the right hand of the Majesty on high because He has equal power and authority and dominion with the Father. How is it that we can trust that we are indeed secure in Christ? That our sins are gone, 
And that future glory for us is certain is because Jesus is vindicated as our Savior, not just in the resurrection, but in the ascension. Because the Father says, My Son, come home. My Son, I welcome you back into My presence because you've done everything I ask you to do. You and your work have been accepted. Jesus refers to this when He's being attacked at His trial by the Jewish authorities. They're asking Him, who do you say that you are? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. I told you, but you won't believe. And then He says these striking words, from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of God, of the power of God. That is, when you see Me again, it won't be like this. You will see Me having been enthroned on high at the right hand of God. In other words, if I put it in my own language, you clowns are condemning Me now. But the day will come where you will be condemned. The day will come where you will bow down and serve Me because every tongue shall confess that Christ is Lord and every knee will get low before Him. You reject Me, but the Father accepts Me. You scoff at My suffering, but the Father is delighted in My submission to His will. You're exalting yourself over Me, but the Father exalts His obedient Son over all enemies. Every foe that stands against Christ and His people will have to answer to King Jesus because He ascends to the throne with all rule, power, and dominion as the darling of heaven. And it means you're safe if you're in Him. Fourthly, moving swiftly on, the worship and joy, verse 52. Jesus had once told the disciples in the upper room, in a little while you won't see Me. I'll depart and that will bring you sorrow. And then your sorrow will turn into joy. That's beginning to be fulfilled here. As those, these men who are gaining an understanding into what Christ is doing, the depth of their new understanding is actually demonstrated to us in verse 52. After, or more likely, during Jesus' parting, while He's ascending into heaven, we read verse 52, and they worshipped Him. Now, in the other Gospels, we see several occasions before the ascension where worship is given to Christ. Why do the Magi following the star come? Because they say, their intention is to worship the King of the Jews. Matthew chapter 14, Jesus is walking on the water. Peter comes out, for a bit anyway, to walk on the water and then looks away and begins to sink. Jesus gets into the boat with Peter and the disciples worshipped Him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. We have a scene in John 9. Jesus has healed the man born blind. That man's not yet saved, but he knows that Jesus has done something significant and the Sadducees and Pharisees, they don't seem to know that. So they kick him out of the synagogue. Jesus goes to find this man who is the Christ that I may worship him. And Jesus says, I, I, I'm he. And the man bows down to worship. There are occasions of worship before this moment. But in Luke's Gospel, while we have seen other people fall down at the feet of Jesus, Luke has not used the verb to worship with Christ as the object of worship until right here. This is clearly intentional. And we can put it like this. Luke has saved his main point of his whole book to this moment. Who is Jesus? He is the King. He's God over all and He must be worshipped. Now you got to remember, 
as these Jews are bowing down to Jesus and worshiping Him, they're monotheistic Jews. They confess the Shema, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one God. But they've come to see that Jesus is God, that Jesus is equal with the Father and worthy of worship. They haven't begun to explain the Trinity to us. They will. But right now, they've begun to worship the One who is raised in body, who, yes, shares in our flesh and blood, but is God Almighty and glorified as the Son of God. Maybe Psalm 2 came to their minds when the Father is laughing at those who are resisting and opposing Him. And He says, I've set My King on Zion, My holy hill. That's resurrection and ascension language, by the way. And all the nations belong to Him, and He shall crush them with a rod of iron, and then the nations are warned. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. In the Psalms, brethren, only Yahweh is called the refuge for His people. And He's called it 25 times. And it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. But Jesus is that refuge. Jesus is the deity they adore. They get it. And they're engaged in the worship of Christ. So the whole point of the book is this. You must worship Jesus. Luke would be supremely upset if you've read his whole book and you failed to do the one thing that you need to do in response to everything he wrote. This is the Son of God. He's no doubt divine. And He must have all your adoration, your commitment, and your love. And here's the real question. Does He? Jesus is not merely a great man. Jesus is not just one who did wondrous things. He is God in the flesh. And you owe Him everything. Are you giving it to Him? Have you confessed Him as King? And are you living like He is the King because His Word governs your life? Understanding that Jesus is the Savior, the disciples go back with joy. They return to Jerusalem because Jesus told them to go and wait there. But they go back with joy. They're trusting that the Lord will equip them to do all that they're supposed to do. So though Christ has departed, they know He reigns. And now they're filled with great joy. Not sorrow at His departing, but great joy. And Luke is kind of summing up his Gospel with bookends. There was an angel who appeared in Luke chapter 2, verse 10, to the shepherds, and he told them these words, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of... Do you remember the next words? Great joy that will be for all the people. The Gospel of great joy has come in all of its fullness because Christ has accomplished everything that should set our hearts to rejoicing. The Gospel has touched their hearts and they worship and they're joyful. Well, are we doing that? You maybe are worshiping this morning, but are you joyful as you do it? Are you engaged in magnifying the Gospel of this great God? Are you overflowing with joy? Because brethren, though we didn't see Christ rise in the flesh, though we didn't see Him ascend with these eyes, we know the witnesses have witnessed to us. And this is the truth. He's awakened us to the wonder of the Gospel that Christ is the only refuge for the sinner. And we are washed, we are welcomed, and we are now walking in new life because of Jesus. That should bring us joy. Is it? And then finally, very briefly, the continual praise. Luke closes with another literary feature, tying 
the whole book together. At the beginning of the Gospel, where are the faithful generally found? Zechariah, Simeon, Anna. They're found at the temple. They're waiting on the redemption to come. Waiting on God's comfort to arrive for His people. And you remember Simeon, the priest, old priest, is holding baby Jesus in his arms and says, My eyes have seen your salvation. We're at the close now of Luke's Gospel. Where are the faithful generally found? They're found at the temple. Verse 53, And they were continually in the temple blessing God. Now, they understand, and increasingly so in the days ahead, that all the sacrifices of the temple have now given way. The curtain is torn. Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension have brought changes. However, they're still waiting on the Lord to equip them to do the work that they need to do. And while they wait, they do what previous waiting, believing people also did. They bless God. They praise the name of the Lord. Yes, the temple was in many ways corrupt. It's being run by religious leaders who are wicked. Soon, not a stone will be standing upon another stone. It will face judgment. But right now, in this temple, though these religious leaders who don't rest in Christ have no idea what everything means, the songs of Zion, speaking of the Savior, are being sung in that place. So they go to the place where the praises of God are going up. And they sing with new eyes. They have been blessed by God in Jesus and they want to continually bless the God who blessed them. Well, brethren, that's how it should be for us. No longer in the temple, of course. We are the temple of God. But we who have been blessed abundantly, who've had grace lavished upon us, should bless the Lord continually throughout all of our days. And again, I've already referred to this text, but don't you remember how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3? He begins, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise Him. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. Are you a blessed people who are blessing? Why did God save you? There are lots of ways you could answer that question. But Peter's answer is really simple. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he says, we are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. We're a people for God's own possession. That we may proclaim the excellencies of His name. The God who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. We have been blessed and therefore we must bless Him. Is that what you long to do? Do you long to come before God and to bless His holy name? There's nothing like singing the praises of God with His gathered saints. And may it be your heart's delight to sing joyous praise to this King who has done all that you need done for your soul to be saved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we stand astounded at Your great work, Your plan of salvation through Christ our Lord to take us sons of Adam and to cleanse us of our Adamic nature full of sin in Jesus and to raise us up and even seat us in the heavenly places in Christ. Lord, would we begin to begin to understand that. That we would live as those who have a foot already in heaven 
and know that that's the place to which we're headed. Father, would you strengthen us as your people to be a people who praise and a people who live knowing the privileges that are ours because blessing rests on us in Christ. And we pray this all in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen.